Good evening, everyone. Uh, our topic for tonight is Soviet Jewish policy under Lenin and Stalin. So tonight's session will be very different from the sessions we've had in previous weeks. You know, for much of this year, we were discussing anti-Semitism of the Christian period, where there was a solution to the, the problem of Jewish identity, namely, change your religion and you won't be persecuted. That the tormentors of the Jews only tormented them for reasons of faith, but faith can be discarded. But for much of this year, we also discussed the very classical period anti-Semitism and the modern period, which was racial in nature, where there is no solution. You are who you are, and it's, uh, uh, it's without, uh, you know, uh, cannot be changed. It's uh, fixed in place, rigid. Well, the communist perspective differs from all of that. In the communist perspective, the substance of one's Jewish identity is not loathed, nor is it respected. It's considered irrelevant. And you're going to melt away into one blob of humanity. The, uh, the toiling masses will all be the same at some point in the future. They might not be now, but they will be later on. So the substance of Jewish identity isn't hated so much as it is seen as something that will inevitably disappear. Well, no, remember, there's always a stark difference between reality and what communist ideology says. In the fantasy world of the, of the communist theoreticians, that's what will happen. In the real world, very different things happen. Okay, so let's take a look at a very famous uh, piece of text written by Stalin in 1913. This is before World War I breaks out, when Stalin is you know, a goon working for the Bolsheviks and not the leader of the party, but a, a high-ranking figure. He says like this, A common language is one of the characteristic features of a nation. A common territory is one of the characteristic features of a nation. A common economic life, economic cohesion, is one of the characteristic features of a nation. And fourthly, a common psychological makeup, which manifests itself in a common culture, is one of the characteristic features of a nation. So if you combine all four things into one uh, neat package, he says, a nation is a historically constituted, stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture. So he's writing about this in reference to many, many different national groups, but with a specific focus in this instance on the Jewish question. So it, are the Jewish people a nation in the eyes of Stalin, in the eyes of uh, M Marxist theory? And the answer is they fail this test. As he defines it, Ju the Jewish people don't pass the test. But you say that... The Jews feel that way, too. Okay. Israel. So the, whether the Jewish people will agree on Stalin's definition of a nation and whether they would think that it still uh, applies to them in the early 20th century, you'll have a machlokis between different factions of the Jewish people. There'll be the Zionists on the one side of the aisle and the assimilationists on the other who will have a very different perspective about what the future holds or should hold for the so-called Jewish nationality. But let's get to Stalin's words here. 
He's criticizing Bauer, who spoke of the Jews as a nation, although, quote, they have no common language. But what common destiny and national cohesion is there, for instance, between the Georgian, Dagestanian, Russian, and American Jews, who are completely separated from one another, inhabit different territories, and speak different languages? So Stalin's point is, you have Jews in America who speak English, who live in a capitalist society, who are blending into American life. They have little or nothing to do with the Jews of the Far East or of the Middle East or of the backward portions of Eastern Europe. The language is not the same. The territory is not the same. The culture to which they are adapting to is not the same. What is there left in Jewish identity in 1913 as seen by Joseph Stalin, which might justify an assertion that the Jews are still a national group? So he he gives us his answer. The above-mentioned Jews undoubtedly leave their economic and political life in common with the Georgians, Dagestanians, Russians, and Americans, respectively. In other words, economically, the Jew blends into his neighbor, who's a goy. Whether you live on Rivington Street, or you live on Peninsula Boulevard, or you live in in another country, you blend into the economic life of your society, not a a Jewish society. Then, uh, this is bound to leave a definite imprint on their national character. In other words, if your economics and your culture are not exclusively Jewish, but rather are based upon the melting pot of whatever society you're living in, your national culture will decline and eventually cease to exist. You'll substantially be hardly be Jewish. You'll vein a Yiddishkeit. There'll be hardly anything left. Um, then he says, all the, if anything is in common to them, it is their religion, their common origin, and certain relics of their national character. All this is beyond question. But how can it be seriously maintained that petrified religious rites and fading psychological relics affect the destiny of these Jews more powerfully than the living social, economic, and cultural environment that surrounds them? It is only on this assumption that it's possible to speak of the Jews as a single nation at all. So what he's saying is, listen, what, what makes a Jew a Jew in 1913 in the Western world? That they light candles on Friday night? that they have certain psychological uh, quirks that are common to them and their so-called kinsmen, that uh, maybe they tend to marry amongst each other. There are a handful of little features that keep a Jew a Jew. But on the whole, the, uh, the great um, wealth of the cultural heritage has already been lost and is declining precipitously day by day. Is Stalin right about that or is he wrong about that? Well, he's right. I mean, uh, at least vis-a-vis the American Jews, he's absolutely correct that American Jews, because of a decline in their Jew- in the substance of their Jewish identity, would cease to regard themselves as a national group. They might regard themselves as a confessional group. We are members of the Mosaic faith or of the Jewish religion, but hardly a nation. And since that's true not only in America, it's true in other parts of the world, and each place where Jews live, they are more associated with their neighbor than with a Jew 500 miles away or 1,000 miles away. There is no Jewish nation anymore. So where does this take us in, in a class on the history of anti-Semitism? In a very peculiar direction. Stalin, at least so far, I mean, well, things will change in the real world as he t- takes power, is saying that uh, I don't want to destroy Jewish identity. It's destroying itself. And because it has already destroyed itself at the political level, the Jews are not going to be reckoned as a nation. Okay. Now, what about anti-Semitism? 
what does the Bolshevik party have to say about the persecution or the, or the unfair treatment of Jews for being Jews? So on July 27th, 1918, the Council of People's Commissars issued harsh decrees against any form of anti-Semitic propaganda. And this was the decree that the Council of Commissars issued. We declare that the anti-Semitic movement and pogroms against the Jews are fatal to the interests of the workers and peasants' revolution and calls upon the toiling people of socialist Russia to fight this evil with all the means at their disposal. National hostility weakens the ranks of our revolutionaries, disrupts the united front of the toilers, without distinction, nationality, and helps only our enemies. The Council of People's Commissars instructs all Soviet deputies to take uncompromising measures to tear the anti-Semitic movement apart. So remember, this is happening in the midst of the Russian civil war between the whites and, and the reds. And white Russia is virulently anti-Semitic, wants to restore uh, the monarchy, an anti-Semitic monarchy that for the previous 150 years had really smacked the Jews, but good. So the, the Soviet regime in its infancy is saying, we oppose anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a con. It's a, it's a fraud. It's a fraud being uh, perpetrated on the Russian people to distract them from the real cause. And what should the real cause be? The workers' revolution. So this is a very odd thing. Normally, we would say that anti-Semitism is uh, the distraction that will take away from you know, whatever ills in society that exist. And now the revolutionary movement is saying anti-Semitism is bad. It's distracting from us. We should be the focus of attention instead of bludgeoning the Jews. Of course, it will be turned on its head in the, in the decades to follow where the Soviet Union will be horribly anti-Semitic in practice, if not in theory. Um, but when that's... Was when was Kishinev? Kishinev was 1903. Okay, so Vladimir Lenin, who takes over the country and runs uh, with an iron fist from 1918 until 19, his death in January of 24, although by late 22, he already had a stroke and he was kind of out of it. Uh, but in 1919 in March, he issues a statement condemning the pogroms that are happening all over uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, the former pale. It's a disaster. About a quarter million Jews die in the, uh, in the Russian Civil War, mostly from just grotesque pogroms that are carried out in part by the Red Army, but mostly by the white Russians and whatever collaborators they have. So Lenin, in March of 1919, condemns anti-Semitism. He says like this, anti-Semitism means spreading enmity towards the Jews. When the accursed czarist monarchy was living its last days, it tried to incite ignorant workers and peasants against the Jews. That's true. It's certainly the case that during the last years of the czarist empire, and even years before that too, there were schemes by the secret police of the czar to foment pogroms here and there. The Tsarist police, in an alliance with landowners and capitalists, organized pogroms against the Jews. Now here, that's Lenin using his own, uh, his bully pulpit to advance his particular ideology, but in a, a kind of a bogus way. 
was it really a collaboration of the czarist secret police with landowners and capitalists? No. The landowners and capitalist line is just Lenin being Lenin and trying to uh, glorify the toiling worker at the expense of the evil capitalist and evil landowner, which has little to do with the, the, the situation of the Jews. Then, the How la- many Jews were capitalists? They had economic advantage. How many were really up there? So some Jews were, were quite wealthy in, in Russia in the last years of the Tsarist Empire, and they lived not in the Pale, but they lived in the interior, Russian interior in the major cities, whether in St. Petersburg or in Moscow, and they struck it rich in various industries, in, uh, including but not uh, limited to the railroad industry, the fur industry, the timber industry, uh, among others. So They were targets then. Yes, they absolutely were targets, yes. So the landowners and capitalists tried to divert the hatred of the workers and peasants who were tortured by want against the Jews. Okay, and to an extent that may be true. In other countries too, we often see the capitalists fomenting hatred against the Jews in order to blind the workers, divert their attention from the real enemy of the working people, capital. Okay, his ideology is in play here. Capital is the, the biggest evil of them all. And whatever distracts you from, from uh, the evils of capital is a scheme, a sinister plot by his political adversaries. And he sees anti-Semitism in that vein. Then, hatred towards the Jews persists only in those countries where slavery to the landowners and capitalists has created abysmal ignorance among the workers and peasants. Only the most ignorant and downtrodden people can believe the lies and slanders that are said about the Jews. This is an interesting comment. Basically saying all the stuff, all the schmutz that was ever said against the Jews is a big lie. And why is it said? Okay, because it serves some useful purpose to find a scapegoat for the ills of society uh, as opposed to the real ills of society. So he's immediately discounting the veracity of any of the usual anti-Semitic canards. They're not true. They're big lies. Okay, this is a survival of ancient feudal times. It's certainly the case. It's a survival from ancient feudal times. When the priests burned heretics at the stake. Okay, so of course, an atheistic regime like the Bolshevik regime is going to want to uh, give a nice shtach to religion generally and Christianity in particular, saying, yeah, in the th- you know, a thousand years ago, they burned people at the stake for believing in, in false theology. Why? Because religion is generally bad. Bad religion is bad. Bad, bad, bad. Atheism, good. That's, you know, the message they're trying to get across here. When the peasants lived in slavery, when the people were crushed and inarticulate, the ancient feudal ignorance is passing away. The eyes of the people are being opened. So, of course, this is this progressive notion that the world is becoming enlightened to the truth, not in traditional enlightenment sense, but rather that their political sense has been enlightened and they recognize that the only way forward is a collectivist approach, namely of Marxism. Well, if not the Jews, who are the enemies of the working people? In other words, the, the, the capitalist is saying the Jews are bad. We're saying the Jews aren't bad. Well, what, what is bad? Okay. The enemies of the workers are the capitalists of all countries. Among the Jews, there are working people, and they form the majority. This is a critical line, an absolutely critical line. In the years to follow... It will not be the case that the Soviet Union identified most Jews as being workers. In fact, in the 1920s, a disproportionate number of Jews were identified as 
non-working class, unproductive classes worthy of having rights stripped from them because they were either uh, you know, the bourgeoisie, the petty, petty bourgeoisie or the elite or the upper class, whatever it is, they were not, quote unquote, working class. And so their rights were diminished in the Soviet system. Here, Lenin is saying, trying to win over a few friends, oh, the majority of Jews are good. Why? Because the majority of Jews are toiling workers, not elite capitalists. But you said an interesting word. You used the word unproductive. Unproductive. But yeah. isn't that what the canard was in the, uh, in, in the 17th century? Yes, also? so the, the canard will come back and we'll see specifically how it relates to the shtetl soon enough. The shtetl will be destroyed. Okay. How, how did the Jews The Jews are happy that the Soviet regime is openly against anti-Semitism, but most Jews are skeptical of the intentions here because they want to preserve their specific Jewish culture and possibly also religion for the Orthodox, and they're nervous that this regime will strip them of their rights to engage in such behavior, and they'd be right to be worried because in the decades to follow, it would all be taken away. Okay, so yes, there are some Jews who are happy that the czar is gone and socialism is the wave of the future, but that's a, that's a minority. Most are nervous about what's going to happen next and don't really want to be there. What okay. about the Christians and the Russian Orthodox? They should have been in the same boat. And they are. Most of the Russian Orthodox believers were the supporters of the white Russians, not the, not the Reds. Okay, so uh, they continue. The majority are working people. They are our brothers who, like us, are oppressed by capital. They are our comrades in the struggle for socialism. Now, Lenin is saying this not because he really thinks it's true, but because he wishes it was true. Among the Jews, there are kulaks, exploiters, and capitalists, just as there are among the Russians and among people of all nations, meaning... There are some good Jews, a lot of good Jews, and there are some bad Jews. And what makes you a bad Jew? Not because you didn't put tefillin on this morning, but because you're a man with money and you have private enterprise and you're oppressing the worker. Okay. Those capitalists strive to sow and foment hatred between workers of different faiths, different nations, and different races. Those who do not work are kept in power by the strength of their capital, meaning there are people who are bums, who are lazy. They physically don't toil. They're just living off of the rent that they collect or the revenue, the profits of whatever business they own, but their hands are not getting dirty. Rich Jews, like rich Russians, and the rich in all countries are in alliance to oppress, crush, rob, and disunite the workers. Okay, so Lenin is not singling out Jews for special treatment. He says they're like every other national group. There are some good ones and some bad ones. Shame on accursed czarism, which tortured and persecuted the Jews. Shame on those who foment hatred towards the Jews, who foment hatred towards other nations. So now anti-Semitism is being lumped together with all forms of racial bigotry and hatred. And it's all bad. We shouldn't do such things. Shame on the czar for having spent the, you know, decades doing this sort of thing. Long live the fraternal trust and fighting alliance of the workers of all nations who struggled to overthrow capital. So Lenin was not a, a, a fraud. Lenin was in many ways a, a real believer in his own rhetoric and uh, at no point uh, tried to exploit the deep-seated hatred of Jews that the Russian masses really felt. Because we shouldn't forget the average goy in Russia really did hate the Jews and really did think terrible, terrible thoughts about the Jews. But at the top of the Bolshevik, Bolshevik regime, at least with Lenin, 
he didn't feel the same way. Stalin was a Jew hater from the beginning. Uh, in fact, he was advocating for pogroms in, as early as 1907. So for all this talk later on that he ha- opposes anti-Semitism, it's a fraud. Okay, well, um, Lenin never differentiated between people, friends and enemies alike, on the basis of their national or ethnic origins. On the other hand, he viewed the assimilation of the Jews and their complete disappearance into the surrounding culture as an inevitable and even desirable result of human advancement. Inevitable and desirable. He believed that Jewish separateness, even in modern and secularist versions like the Bund or socialist Zionism, was a remnant of pre-capitalist era and had begun to disappear quickly in Western countries like Germany, France, and England. He viewed separate cultural and social existences of the Jews as a corollary of anti-Jewish discrimination and persecution, and as a symptom of the backwardness of Russia, where medieval ways had yet to crumble. So he therefore denounced all manifestations of anti-Semitism, but also all forms of Jewish nationalism and separatism as reactionary right-wing phenomena that deflect the Jewish workers away from revolutionary solidarity with their non-Jewish comrades. So what does he want then? He wants people not to hate the Jews, but he also wants the Jews not to be Jewish, but rather to just be human beings. Well, how do you go about that? What measures can be taken to suppress anti-Semitism on the one hand and to suppress Jewish identity on the other? What do you say? Close the shuls. Close the shuls. Okay. So the easiest thing was to shut down what we could be regarded as political activity that is non-Bolshevik, non-communist. So the Bund can be disbanded. That's a, yeah, the Bund disbanded, okay? Now, the Bund was socialist and arguably could have been a useful tool for the Bolshevik regime in fostering a certain Soviet Jewish identity among the masses of Yiddish-speaking Jews. But because they were not beholden to the party, Lenin and Stalin and and Trotsky wanted it finished, gone, done. Also, Zionism. Doesn't matter what variety of Zionism, it's going to be stamped out as being a reactionary uh, political theory. Well, um, Zionism was already, by, uh, before the war, before the Russian Revolution, seen unfavorably by Stalin, who famously uh, said, the Bund are really Zionists afraid of a boat ride. In other words, they're one and the same. They want Jewish nationalism, whether in Palestine or here in Russia, but whether it's in Palestine or it's here in Russia, it's the same thing. It's at cultivating Jewish national fervor that we think is bad and ought to, by right, by axiom of history, disappear. So the Bund are Zionists afraid of a boat ride. That's his, his famous slogan. But following this procedure, yeah. isn't that anti-Semitic in itself? Of course. All these things in practice result in the persecution of Jews, which I would say is anti-Semitism. So the talk that in theory anti-Semitism is bad and is contrary to Soviet law is really a big bluff. It doesn't mean all that much. Okay, so the problem that uh, the regime had in its early days during the Russian Civil War and after the Russian Civil War into the 1920s, was that 
the Jews, the, the, the masses of Jews had not really participated in the Russian Revolution, had not aligned themselves with the Communist Party in any faction of the Communist Party, uh, whether Menshevik or Bolshevik before the war. They were just Jewish living their lives. And even if they might have had sympathies for left of center politics, that still wasn't good enough for the, the Politburo. So what can the Supreme Soviet do to get Jewish people interested in Sovietizing their identity? And the answer is the Jewish section of the Communist Party, the Yevsektsia. So the Yevsektsia was established with Lenin's consent in 1918. And the goal was to spread the revolution among the Jewish masses. Why was this necessary? Because as Shimon Dimenstein who grew up as a yeshiva buffer and then became an atheist and became the leader of the Jewish section of the Soviet the Communist Party, quote, when the October Revolution came, the Jewish workers remained totally passive. A large part of them were even against the revolution. The revolution did not reach the Jewish street. Everything remained as before. Well, yeah, it could be. If you lived in an out-of-the-way place, not one of the major cities, you were on the, on the shtetls in the little towns, and nobody was especially active politically, let alone politically active in the Communist Party. So life went on one day to the next. So how does the, the, the party get you excited about this new Soviet regime? By appealing to you in specifically Jewish terms and in your language, in the Yiddish language. So the stated mission of the Avsexia was, quote, the destruction of traditional Jewish life, the Zionist movement, and Hebrew culture. Hebrew is a problem. Why is Hebrew a problem? It's just a language. What does Hebrew represent? It represents Zionism. It represents an, an alternative national identity, as opposed to Yiddish, which is just the language of the street. The reality is Jews speak Yiddish. But Hebrew, you had to learn Hebrew. That's a new language, a, a modern language. And that is sinister. That has to be stamped out and would continue to, continue to continue to be stamped out until the 1970s and 80s, when, uh, you know, in the, the Refusnik era, it was still a problem. Okay, well, from January 7th, 1921, to March, 30, uh, March of 1930, Der Emis, the truth, Der Emis, was the house organ of the Central Bureau of the Yevsektia. So there was propaganda, newspaper literature, that's producing, uh, you know, newspapers, magazines, books, designed to convince Yiddish-speaking Jews of the glories of the Soviet Republic. Okay, well, in January 1939, the campaign against Yiddish culture in, in Russia became widespread and their emiss was liquidated. So all this only lasted for about a decade. Some things lasted until the end of the 30s, but even by 1930, things were winding down. This was a temporary measure, a temporary measure to use the language Yiddish and Jewish culture to change the identity of the Jew. But it's only a temporary measure because in the long run, what is the real goal? That these people, these Jews, should speak Russian, feel Russian, and have the Yiddishism be a forgotten thing of the distant past, not to be brought back to life. Okay. According to, to Lenin and Stalin, Jews lacked the constituent elements to make them a nation, as I said. Jews were a confessional group with a peculiar occupational profile bound to disappear. 
So in the 1920s, this was the emphasis that Jews are a religion and we don't like religion. And Jews are an economic profile. And to the extent that that is an objectionable economic profile because they are non-productive, well, we have to wean you off of that forcibly. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be extracted from your economic circumstances and thrust into something else. What is that something else going to be? So in the beginning, collective farms. But that's only in the 1920s. By the 1930s, there is a sufficient number of factory jobs in industrial production that the Jews are going to be forced into that. However, in the long run, actually, Jews educated themselves in Soviet Russia and became a dominant element of the Soviet middle class. So that after World War II, Soviet Jews were not uh, you know, the ones going hungry because they were at the bottom of the barrel. They actually did well by Soviet standards because they had uh, you know, useful, uh, learned professions. But first collective farming, then industrialization, and then wartime. Okay. Uh, the communists con- uh, continued the czarist-era policies of reconstructing Jewish society by way of three things, integration, productivization, and education. Integration means no separatist Jewish institutions. Productivization meant, as I said, on the farm or in the factory, as opposed to being a middleman, being a shopkeeper, uh, you know, petty trades. And lastly, education. Education, but in the Russian language. There will be Yiddish language schools uh, under the auspices of the Evsektia, but that was never all that popular because it was not seen as a path to a good uh, uh, employment opportunities since employment opportunities required Russian-speaking uh, skills. Yiddish education wasn't going wasn't to accomplish that for you. And so parents tended to avoid these Yiddish schools. Okay. The toiling masses were integrated early on, but other economic classes were made to suffer. Um, whereas the czars wanted Jews to go to tra- trading, uh, turn from trading to craftsmanship, the Soviets wanted them in the factories. Uh, the Soviets were more interventionist than the czars had been in matters of religion. So what is the Soviet policy on Judaism as a religion in its earliest years? The answer is it's a mixed bag. There were some years when they, they were hands off and other times when they were hands on suppressing things. Uh, but eventually, by the, by the 1930s, it was all suppression. Religion is bad. You know, if you can't you can't give your child a Jewish education, religious education, you know, is the opiate of the masses. It's forbidden. Only adults can go to the synagogue. And even that you can get into trouble with your place of work if you were seen as overtly religious. So it was a, it was a, a tough go of it to be traditionally Jewish. So intermarriage was probably encouraged. Intermarriage, whether it was encouraged or not, it happened in large uh, to a large degree. Uh, so even in the interwar period and Allah has come of a come all the more so in the postwar period. Chabad flourished briefly, but then it too was suppressed. What happened to the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe? So Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson was sentenced to death for running a, a, a not-so-secretive network of yeshivas and the synagogues. But due to an outcry from the Western world and from the broader Jewish world, that death sentence was overturned to incarceration and imprisonment, and then that was overturned to an exile. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe moved to Riga, to Latvia, uh, where he stayed until his permanent move to the United States in 1940. So religion is not doing well. The Moalim, the Shochtim, the Malamdim are all subject to arrest on somebody's whim. 
and many were judicially murdered by some show trial uh, because uh, of uh, of what was was seen as anti-Soviet activity. To preserve Jewish religion was anti-Soviet activity. The property of the synagogues and of the Jewish institutions were made a target of allegedly spontaneous workers' campaigns for their conversion to more useful purposes, such as workers' clubs and public libraries. In other words, you just uh, expropriate Jewish communal property and use it for whatever you want. Um, During the, the Great Purge of 1937 and 38, Jews were not specifically targeted but they did uh, comprise a disproportionate element of those killed. Now, among those who uh, were executed in the Great Purge of 37 and 38 were two former members of the Politburo. So Lev Kamenev and Grigory Zinoviev. Kamenev and Zinoviev were allies of Trotsky at one time and then were collaborators with Stalin for a while until they had a falling out with Stalin. And he had he had them killed. There is a, a famous scene in the movie Stalin, played by Robert Duvall, uh, which reflects what is, is claimed really did happen when Kamenev and Zinoviev were executed in 1938. Um, they were taken to the dungeon in the KGB or the NKVD headquarters, and they were about to be shot point blank range. At which time. Kamenev stood uh, like a soldier and wanted to die with dignity. And Zinoviev, who was only half Jewish, the wrong half, starts quaking in his boots and, and going down on his knees and begging for mercy and saying, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. So here a member of the Soviet Politburo said Shema Yisrael before being executed by Stalin's henchmen. That's just a, a flavor of what was going on uh, in the Great Purge of the late 30s. Okay. Um, it wasn't so simple I, I mean it wasn't impossible no there were Jews who did leave but it wasn't so simple now, some were able to make it to the United States if you had uh, you know, a cooperative relative who would extend an invitation and a visa was issued um, some were able to make it to Eretz Israel, and some were able to make it to Central Europe not too many, but it was it was it was possible with a lot of wrangling. Okay. Now, be, because most Jews belong to the bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeoisie, social strata, the communists regarded to be naturally hostile to the state, the state's aggressive politic policies towards them came dangerously close to being an undeclared form of anti-Semitism, as you said, Norman. If they're doing all these things by, you know, state policy, which adversely affects the Jews, isn't it anti-Semitism? Yeah, it is, basically. The Jews were seen as an exploitative class, and a disproportionate percentage were formally declared vishensi, non-working. Repression of unproductive classes weighed heavily on the Jews. The shtetl was totally destroyed as a viable social formation, because on the shtetl, remember, what kind of a job do you have in the shtetl? This one raises chickens, this one raises, produces milk, this one, you're producing some item for sale, and you are pocketing money off of essential foodstuffs. And that is a big no-no. If Jews wanted to have a concentrated national demographic, they were told they could go to Barobajan. Now, Barobajan is in the middle of nowhere in the Far East, 
Who would want to go there? Nobody would want to go there. And even there, the Jews were never more than one-third of the population. By the way, today they're about 1% of the population. So the proletarianization of the Jews was uh, a transient phenomenon. This really didn't work out. Jews were persecuted, but the Jews educated themselves and ended up in the middle class, as I said. Okay, so anti-Semitism was attacked by the government intermittently between the 20s and 30s. But then the attack stopped. Uh, during, let's say, the, uh, the, the Ukrainian famine and then into the purge, the government stopped attacking anti-Semitism. It was still technically illegal, but the government did nothing about it. Why? Because hostility to Jews was seen as a tool in Sovietizing Jewish society. Meaning, if the government is defending the Jew from anti-Semitic attacks, the Jew then thinks that he has a right to remain different, to preserve his distinction. And we'll feel comfortable doing so, thinking that it's not going to hurt him in the long run. But if anti-Semitism is not suppressed by the government, but rather is allowed to flourish, at least below the radar, or even above the radar, then the Soviet Jew thinks, uh-oh, I had better totally divorce myself from my cult- the cultural baggage of my parents and become just another Russian citizen. Now, is it really possible to do that? No. Because on the internal passport, what does it say? That your nationality was a Jew, the fifth line of the passport. So it was, it was impossible to get rid of it completely, but the Jew had an incentive not to look Jewish, not to behave Jewishly, because the government was not stamping out anti-Semitism. Okay, well, um, the Evsectia were seen as like the, the, by the Jews themselves as the worst... Yiddish anti-Semitim, the Jewish anti-Semites, that here they are acting as the, the, the useful idiots of the government to wipe away our thousands of years of heritage. Linguistically, religiously, culturally, it's all going to be gone because these goons, Jewish goons, are ruining it for us. Well, one of the ways that Soviet anti-Semitism worked was to eliminate the Jewish content of Yiddish. How do you do that? How do you eliminate the Jewish content of Yiddish? Okay, good. So there are two major ways that this can be done. Actually, three ways. One is use the Cyrillic alphabet or the Roman alphabet instead of Hebrew block letters. That one of the important things about Yiddish was it allowed people to read Hebrew. Because if you read Yiddish, you were really reading Hebrew letters, Hebraic words. Um, If you take that away, then it's just another gibberish language in whatever character font you want to use. So the Cyrillic uh, Yiddish or the the Latin Yiddish, as opposed to the Hebrew block Yiddish, was one method. Another was eliminating the Lushen Kodesh Werther. Remember, what is Yiddish? Yiddish is Middle High German. 70%, 20% 70%, 20% Hebrew, and 10% Slavic. I mean, it, it varies depending upon what country you're in, but roughly speaking, it's about 70% German, 20% Hebrew, 10% Slavic. So what do you do? You increase the Slavic and eliminate the Hebrew. Get rid of the, the Lushen Kurdish words so that Yiddish becomes a Goyesha language. How do you enforce that? Aha, how do you enforce that? The answer is you have a... a um, an institute for Yiddish studies paid for by the government 
which is a competitor to YIVO. YIVO was in Berlin and in Vilna. Vilna, which uh, is in Poland, not Lithuania. Vilna is in Poland at that time because uh, the border was there. Um, so YIVO Yiddish is like pro-Jewish Yiddish. It may be secular, and the, and the people involved, like Weinreich, were not from, but it was a Jewish Yiddish, where Soviet Yiddish will have a, a, um, a de-Judaizing tendency. And there'll be writers and pamphleteers and uh, putting out literature that is uh, eliminating the Lushan Kurdish. The third way, and this is really funny, I learned this at Columbia when I took Yiddish there, was to change the spelling. That if you have Lushan Kurdish Werther, what you do is you spell it phonetically. So how do you spell Shabbos? Instead of Shabbos being Shin, Bez, Suf, like you have in Hebrew, Shin Bet Tuf, you have Shin, Aleph, Bet, Ein, Samach, Shabbos, Shabbos. That's a way to eliminate the Hebrew content of the language. So all this is Shtusim and Narashkaitan, to be honest, but some people took it seriously until all of them were executed in the Stalinist purge in the late 30s. Here you had people who were working, doing the bidding of the, of the, of the Communist Party to eliminate the, 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 the Yiddishkeit of the Jews, and they themselves got the, the punch to the face and the bolt in the back of the head uh, by the end of the 30s. Okay, well, um, there's a, you know, a real question as to whether or not this early uh, attempt by the, the communist state to allow for Yiddish Jew, uh, Soviet Yiddish culture, whether this was seen as a good faith attempt or as a sinister plot. Those who were suspicious of all communist uh, propaganda and communist policymaking said, this is not going to work out well. This must be designed to harm us. But there were those Jews who really sincerely believed that it was possible to have a, a, fla- a flowering of Soviet Yiddish culture, not for the sake of destroying the Jews, but for the sake of giving them something that the other national groups also had. Because remember, the Soviet Union is not just Russia. What is it? It's a whole host of nationalities, especially in the Caucasus in the South and the Far East. Also, uh, you know, even in the, in the Pale, yeah, yeah, you have the, you know, the Ukrainians. So the Jews are another nationality. Maybe the Jews are entitled to have some cultural expression. But those who fell for the trap paid with their lives or just you know, paid with a lot of heartache because the Evsexia did not ultimately do anything good. How many members of the Evsexia were there? So really, there were only about 1,500 activists in 70 units. But they were so uh, uh, ubiquitous in the Jewish world that it was, it was seen as though there were thousands and thousands of these people collaborating with the, with the government to stamp out any expression of, of Yiddishkeit. Okay. Um, and I want, to, I want to read to you, Stalin, in 1931, gave an interview to the Jewish news agency. So here, Stalin, it's like, giving, uh, like Stalin giving an interview to the forward, or the Havdil, or, the ta- or tablet magazine. So that would be a big seller, you know, extra, extra, you read all about it. Stalin interviewed by, by a tablet magazine, okay? So let's, uh, let, let's see what he says. National and racial chauvinism is a vestige of the misanthropic cu- customs characteristic of the period of cannibalism. 
Okay, so he's saying chauvinism of the national racial variety is from a distant past. It's a it's a a holdover from the days when humans were 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 vildechayes, cannibals. Now remember, who's saying this? Stalin, who killed more people than anyone other than Mao in the history of the world, is is this this dismissive of cannibalism. Okay, anti-Semitism as an extreme form of racial chauvinism is the most dangerous vestige of cannibalism. So here he's saying all the right things that anti-Semitism is really bad. Anti-Semitism is uh, is of advantage to the exploiters as a lightning conductor that deflects the blows aimed by the working people at capitalism. So this is just borrowing from what Lenin said a decade earlier, but his expression, a lightning conductor, was was preserved in subsequent literature to to describe the evils of anti-Semitism, that if you want to very quickly, very quickly change the subject and find a fall guy, a patsy, someone on whom you can thrust all the the problems, lightning conductor, that's anti-Semitism. Then, anti-Semitism is dangerous for the working people as being a false path that leads them off the right road and lands them in the jungle. Peculiar word, jungle, for a, a, a Russian leader to use, not as though there's a jungle in Russia, but you get the point. He says that you go off the derech when you, when you follow the path of anti-Semitism, because the, the derech, the narrow derech, is that of straight Marxism or Stalinism. The anti-Semitism gets you off the derech. Hence, communists, as consistent internationalists, cannot but be irreconcilable sworn enemies of anti-Semitism. No, we hate it. We're, we're going to be fighting the good fight against anti-Semitism. In the USSR, anti-Semitism is punishable with the utmost severity of the law as a phenomenon deeply hostile to the Soviet system. Under USSR law, active anti-Semites are liable to the death penalty. I ask you, was anybody ever executed by Stalin for anti-Semitic agitation? No. Plenty of people were executed for a whole host of things, but not for anti-Semitic agitation. So why is Stalin giving an interview like this in 1931? Why? Propaganda. Good. Propaganda. Remember, this is the height of the Depression in the United States. And there is an assumption made by many world leaders in the interwar period that American Jews play an outsized political role. And American Jews lean towards the left side of the aisle, and they might be tempted to think of the Soviet Union as this worker's paradise if they don't know the truth, and they don't know the truth, okay? The, the, the famines and, and, and the purges are kept secret from the Western readers of you know, the newspapers because the, the Russian system is a closed system and was able to keep everybody in the dark. So if... If Stalin says to a Jewish newspaper for a gullible Western audience that this country of ours, this glorious workers' paradise, does not countenance anti-Semitism and we work against it, there will be plenty of people who believe it, believe it wholeheartedly. I mean, remember, when, when Stalin died, and this is 1953 when Stalin dies, after the war, after all the purges, after a lot of this stuff is now known, you know, even in Israel, the Mapam party, and, and the Maki party sat Shiva for, 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 for the comrade Stalin. So there are plenty of people outside the Soviet Union, outside the borders of, uh, of the Soviet empire, 
who are willing to gobble up and accept wholeheartedly this kind of nonsense of anti-Semitism is anathema to our way of life. Okay, well, Stalin, in fact, did hate Jews. Um, unlike Lenin, who we can't really say that he had a particular axe to grind against Jews, he just didn't want Judaism to survive as a faith or Jews to continue as an identifiable group. But Stalin actually really did hate Jews and took some uh, guilty pleasure or a lot of guilty pleasure in seeing Jews suffer as part of his general persecution of political opponents. It was even sweeter when it was a Jew who suffered. When Trotsky was assassinated with an ice pick in Mexico City, Stalin, of course, rejoiced over the demise of his longtime rival and adversary, whom he had attempted to assassinate multiple times over and failed in prior attempts, but also because, ah, we got that dirty Jew. there, there, There was plenty of bigotry there, which made the Molotov and Ribbentrop Pact all the easier because Stalin understood that many Jews would suffer and die as a result of that deal. Okay, well, uh, in the few minutes we have left, I want to discuss what happens during the war and up to a little bit post-war. Because next week we'll discuss the, the end of the Stalinist period into Khrushchev and beyond. During the war, uh, the Soviet Union faced a terrible situation after Operation Barbarossa began in June of 1941. Okay, they're being invaded by the, by the Wehrmacht and Jews are being killed by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands by the Einsatzgruppen in the forests of the Ukraine and Belarus and into Russia. Uh, and Jews need to escape. So in the grand history of the Jewish people, we can say that escaping to the Russian interior was the best way for a Soviet Jew to preserve his own life. Life was very miserable, okay, living in Siberia or wherever, Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan during the war years. It wasn't a comfortable existence by any stretch. And plenty were drafted into the army and then had to go to the front. But better that than being shot by the by. Uh, by the Ukrainians or by the Einsatzgruppen were being shipped off to a death camp. So Soviet Russia during the war was something of a safe haven. And then as the war is coming to an end, the Russian army is an army of liberation for many Jews. Um, Hungarian Jews in particular, especially those who came to America in 1956 and 68, despite their their uh, suffering under communist dictatorship in the post-war era still had a soft spot in their heart for the fact that the Red Army spared them from the Nazis. So in, in a course on anti-Semitism, we're always looking to say, who are the worst anti-Semites? Who are the worst anti-Semites? Well, sometimes the question is, who saved you from anti-Semitism? And the answer isn't always a tzaddik. Sometimes it's a Russia gummer, it's an evil person or an evil regime, but just so happens that, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, as Winston Churchill said that uh, when, he, when he said something favorable about Stalin in the House of Commons, it's because uh, if, the, if Hitler invaded hell, I'd make a favorable comment about the devil in the House of Commons. So we have to recognize that someone who is 
really a, a Rasha Gamur in the broad st- scope of history does do something or his regime does something favorable at some point in time. Okay, now Stalin as uh, a good guy doesn't end with, ninth, with May of 1945. Last year, uh, two years ago, when we discussed the history of Zionism, we spent at least one session, if not more, I believe, on the role played by the Soviet Union in facilitating the, exist- the emergence of the state of Israel. So Stalin allows for weaponry to be sold from, Czech- from communist Czechoslovakia to the Haganah, to pre-state Eretz Israel between 47 and 48. And uh, the representative at the United Nations, Andrei Gromyko, who goes on to become the Soviet foreign minister uh, on May 2nd, 1947, speaks favorably of a, of a two-state solution, of a partition of Palestine. The Soviet Union votes for partition in uh, November uh, 1947 in the General Assembly. And the Soviet Union recognizes the de jure status of the state of Israel even before the United States does. The United States recognizes under Truman the de facto authority 11 minutes after midnight on May 15, 1948, 74 years ago tomorrow, whatever it is. Uh, But the Soviet Union was very quick to recognize Israel. Was this going to be a turning point towards removing Soviet anti-Semitism domestically, internally? Well, no. And in fact, the opposite is true, that the uh, willingness of the Soviet regime to um, recognize Israel and to depart from its usual methods of anti-Zionism, which, by the way, it did mostly to oust the British from the Middle East, not out of any love of the Jews or a desire for the existence of the state of Israel, but to oust the British and to have a toehold in the Middle East because it was seen that, it, that the Jewish state would be a, a socialist, if not communist state. Um, what happened was this got the Jews in Russia too excited. And Golda Meir showed up in the summer or late summer, early fall of 1948 as Israel's first ambassador to the Soviet Union. Now, bear in mind, Golda uh, Maybovich, Golda Meyerson, a.k.a. Golda Meir, is 50 years old, was born in, in, in Tsarist Russia in the Ukraine, and is now coming back all full circle at the age of 50 as the ambassador of the Jewish state to uh, the Russian Empire, to the, the, the Soviet Empire. And what does she do? She ha- meets with a big gathering of Jews in Moscow and goes for Yom Kippur davening to the Moscow Great Synagogue. And there are thousands of Jews outside. And what does she say to them? She just, years later, she said, I didn't know what to say. So I said some gibberish. She said, Adank for Bleiben on Yidin. Thank you for still being Jewish. In other words, despite whatever uh, anti Judaic persecution had happened in the 30 years since the, the, the October Revolution of 1917, you, know, you didn't lose your identity. You're here on a, on a holy day by a synagogue. You're proud of your identity. You haven't been lost completely. So Adank for Bleiben on Yidin. But what does Stalin think of all this? Does he like that an Israeli ambassador is in a shul with thousands of Jews and thanking them for being Jewish and the Jews are all riled up about their identity? No, this is a disaster. What, what the communist regime wanted was for Jews to not be interested in any separatist identity, but rather to just be Soviet citizens. And so this episode 
leads towards uh, a downward spiral that between late 1948 and Stalin's death in 1953, things get worse and worse and worse with the political prosecution and persecution of Jewish doctors, Jewish uh, cultural figures, Jewish artists, and even Jewish politicians in Soviet satellite states like Czechoslovakia. So let's stop here. And next week, we'll discuss the doctor plot and the plot trials. Oh, no, I take it back. There is no class next week. I'll be in Israel next week. In two weeks, so May 26th, um, we'll discuss the Prague trial, the doctor's plot, the death of Stalin, uh, and then how Soviet anti-Jewish policy continues under Khrushchev in 1956, in in terms of the war in, in, in Sinai, and then in terms of cracking down on uh, desire for emigration. And we'll try to get through up into the period of the refuseniks. Okay, see you all in two weeks. Did you say they recognized Israel as a...